The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Thursday, October 20th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The tenure of Liz Truss, a calamity. The ouster, an inevitability. Her legacy, a farce. And we will get to all that. But first, I was fascinated by the mechanics of how it all went down. The proximate cause historians call it, or at least I was told that's what historians call it when I studied the Civil War in seventh grade. So we say in instances like this, the cabinet ministers were pushed out. But in this case, ministers were literally pushed and shoved and corralled in the houses of parliament. It's a bit complex, but a vote on fracking, really a vote to bring it up for discussion, turned into a referendum on trust herself, a no confidence vote, though later they denied it was a no confidence vote. But then after that, they pretty much said we have no confidence. But it was a you're either with us or against us moment, not a figurative time to choose sides. To show your position, the members of parliament physically assemble in different hallways and lobbies and scenes of MPs being physically pushed into one place or another were observed. Here is Labour MP Chris Bryant describing things to the BBC. Ministers and, and government whips all around them um, and and. To all intents and purposes, one of them, to my mind anyway, that's, this is what it looked like to me, was basically pushed or pulled um, through, in, through into the division lobby. The chaos was just as much physical as it was verbal. MPs loudly declaring their frustrations. Deputy Whip Craig Whitaker was heard to have announced. Allegedly one of them junior. going through the corridors shouting, I don't f- anymore yes that was the tldr podcast trust issues good name but without further clarification i can only conclude that the gentleman was saying he doesn't care for fracking anymore shouting i don't care anymore so sad that the english invented this grand language but we have to turn to this german broadcaster to hear what was said in full woraufhin dann der stellvertretende Fraktionschef das Parlament mit den Worten verließ I'm fucking furious and I don't fucking care anymore. Ich übersetze das jetzt mal nicht, aber das ist eine Partei, wo wirklich a chaotic scene, a chaotic night followed by this, a chaotic day ending the reign of oh what word shall I use? A chaotic prime minister. Oh And in case you care about UK fracking, that vote passed. Kind of meaningless. It really was a conversation to have a conversation. And UK fracking policy, which is to say a ban, probably will not change. Right now, the real conversation is how deep down will a Tory party have to go to extract a bit of talented leadership without destroying the natural world. On the show today, more trust in the spiel. Can't get enough of this wonderful trust. But first... I don't know if you know this about U.S. politics. Like the English, kind of unstable over here. Recent leaders, similarly dysfunctional. That was the thesis pursued and to a great degree proved by the January 6th committee. They just wrapped up their work. We will check in with a progress report, if not a final grade, with Lawfare's David Priest. The work of the January 6th committee is done. But of course, it's not done because there is still an ex-president walking around, not 
answering questions, not even being charged with a crime. Joining me to talk about the work of this committee and whose needle they may have actually moved is Dr. David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute, and author of such books as The President's Book of Secrets and How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. David, welcome back to The Gist. It is good to be back with you and talking about the committee because it's done a hell of a lot. It's just done it in a different way than we're used to committees doing it and doing it in a different way than we're used to a judicial process doing it. So it is a bit of a a funny animal. Could they have done it that way if they had Republican buy-in and were to have operated like a normal committee would have? I don't know. I think having, and they do have Republican buy-in, of course, they have- uh, Right, but if they had bipartisan, (laughs) normal normal rules of order type committee support. I think in some ways, Mike, it's been liberating that they don't have the traditional committee back and forth questioning everything, challenging assertions, but instead they- seem to have operated by consensus on how to move forward. And I'm sure that in the telling of the committee's interoperations that will eventually come out, it wouldn't surprise me if we find out that there have been some disagreements on how far to push when on certain witnesses, on whether to issue subpoenas, what areas to focus on the most at what time. But generally, uh, they have told a, a very compelling narrative over time without those squabbles within the committee that that normally bog these things down. So all in all, I think the fact that the Republican leadership in the House decided to take their ball and go home, and that some principled members of the party, specifically Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, decided to you know step up and fulfill the mission uh, regardless, I think that's a, a net benefit to them and frankly, to the American people to hear the story. Were there revelations, actual pieces of news that you gleaned from the last public hearing last week? There were a few things. Uh, One, which honestly wasn't quite so much about the the story of the former president and what he did, but still was, was compelling TV, was the film footage that I didn't know existed of Speaker Pelosi and others calling on executive branch officials not named Donald J. Trump to try to do something. Governor, I don't know if you have been approached about the uh, Virginia National Guard. Mr. Hoyer was connect, uh, speaking to uh, uh, Governor Hogan, uh, but I still think you probably need the okay of the, uh, the federal government in order to come into another jurisdiction. We knew some of that had occurred, but we didn't have that film footage of it happening, which showed us a couple of things. Uh, one, it showed us that you had leaders of the United States government, uh, in this case, in the the legislative branch, but you had leaders in the United States government, calm, cool, and collected at a moment of crisis and trying to reach out to others across that big enterprise saying, what can we do to stop this and to get the business of government moving again? But frankly, you also saw kind of history in the making. You saw people making split decisions about who do I call and where do I think there is influence with the president to do something Uh, about the situation on Capitol Hill. I thought that was interesting. That wasn't essential for the story they were telling, but I think it was, it was good. It was good TV. 
Right. That filled in if we were constructing, you use the word narrative, if this were a 12 episode series, this would be the B plot of episode eight, let's say. <laughs> it's interesting, but it's not damning to the president directly. Not directly. It, it does help support the, the, the narrative and fill out the history of what happened, which is pointing out that the president and those closest to him in the executive branch structure did know what was happening and they did have information about it. So it can't be, well, we didn't know in real time what the situation was. It, it helps fill in part of that to point out that, yes, the president knew what was happening when it happened and chose not to do anything about it for hours and hours. So it, it does help fill that in a bit. I thought that much of the work of the committee went towards filling in the mens rea, his uh, President Trump's state of mind at the time. And it's a very hard thing to prove, but not impossible. And people get convicted on crimes that have a mens rea component all the time. And maybe not exactly uh, is every conviction because someone admitted, yes, this is what I was thinking at the time. You could make inferences. You could present to a jury evidence that might convince them there's really no other interpretation of the president's state of thinking at the time. Now, how far did they go, uh, do you think, in convincing you or some fair-minded observer that the president's state of mind was criminal for a number of the acts, such as uh, inciting the crowd and what would happen next? And then the second part of it is, because this was a narrative and because this was essentially a prosecutor's brief, do you wonder or worry, as I do, that there are some obvious rebuttals to what they put forward? Yeah, this gets to a big issue and then a tactical issue. So first, the big issue, which is I didn't see this, and I don't know if the committee members see this as a judicial proceeding. That is, that they have to establish elements of a crime. Yes, Congress is filled with people with lawyerly backgrounds, and they do tend to think that way. And a lot of the commentary tends to be on that front. So you heard a lot of people after the hearing saying, did they provide all the elements that will be necessary for a criminal referral to the Department of Justice? There is no such thing as a formal criminal referral that necessarily comes out of a committee like this. They can issue a public statement or a private one to someone at the Justice Department saying, here's all the information we collected. We believe there's enough for you to pursue an investigation of a crime. But there, there is no necessary uh, component of that as part of the committee results. It's a political hearing. It is a political event. But we still get in that same mode that we were in during the former administration of looking at everything through, well, was it collusion that was defined by the, the legal definition? Was there actual criminal conspiracy? Instead of just looking at, was this right? Was this the kind of thing that you want the leaders of your country doing and, and not doing? So in the big picture, I tend to look at it not in terms of whether all the elements of a specific crime were met, but whether this showed that the president was fit for office or not in the larger political sense. So, so that's, that's the big picture. The smaller sense, the tactical sense you're asking about, did they establish the president's state of mind, for example, inciting the crowd? What was interesting here, I have to credit Alan Rosenstein, one of my colleagues at Lawfare, who quickly hit the observation watching the hearing that they were actually doing some important work here of not just establishing what the president might or might not have implied in his statements to the crowd and then his inaction afterwards, but what overt acts did he take? We saw in earlier hearings, overt acts like 
trying to get the magnetometers removed so that weapons could be allowed into this general area. But we had a little bit more of that in this hearing too, where there was a little bit more about what the president knew when he knew it. Was he trying to get back to the Capitol to rally the crowd closer to Capitol Hill? Things like that. Once you get to the overt acts part, then you actually do look like you're doing a checklist for that legal issue of what did the person have the intent to do something and then did they do something to actually move it forward? That seems to meet the conditions of incitements. So yeah, it did look like they were putting together some kind of a prosecutor's brief here. I don't know if it's compelling before a jury. I, I don't know that based on what they've put together, whether this would convince 12 people that a specific crime of incitement or seditious conspiracy or something would actually be true. But again, back to the first point, I'm not sure that's the committee's goal. The committee's goal is to tell a political story about the unfitness of the former president. Yeah, I'll I'll stipulate that point that this isn't it's not necessary for the committee to have done that, to have um done more than what it was tasked with doing or how it defined itself. But I'll just raise this concern with so many of the what were taken as uh, damning or compelling revelations, not all, but so many that's that seem to make the case that the president's state of mind was to want the crowd to attack the Capitol. I just thought of many counter explanations that were at least plausible. For instance, the part with the magnetometers. I don't fucking care if they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. They're not here to hurt me. When this was talked about afterwards, people quoting the uh, the, the testimony were saying, they're not here to hurt me. But when Hutchinson and others said it, they emphasized they're not here to hurt me. So just to take that one example, you could establish a state of mind of a guy who's very interested in the crowd marching on the Capitol, or you could also, I think, plausibly um, advance a notion that this is a guy who is just a megalomaniac who wants an adoring crowd in front of him. Another example of that is him raging that we lost the election. Is that dispositive proof that everything he said afterward to overturn that result was a knowing lie? No, I think it's plausible to say, look at what they're reporting. Look at what these numbers are saying. They're saying we lost the election. There are three or four of them that without uh, an able defense attorney, and who knows if Trump can afford one now, I just want wondered if um, the people who interpret this committee as delivering a slam dunk misinterpreted and maybe they maybe they just delivered a you know well-crafted 12-foot jumper I don't know <laughs> you you raise some really good points there which is is it enough to show that the president should have known he lost the election um, or do you have to show that the president knew he lost the election and then repeatedly did things to try to overturn it anyway? Um, I think that was some of the committee's important work of showing that the president was told, and in at least one case, the president seemed to acknowledge, yeah, I lost, but. And then you get to all of the acts like trying to find those votes in Georgia and trying to find something wrong with machines in Michigan or somewhere else. To me, that's really the important part for rebutting, if you will, the, the arguments you just said. That is, you know, the president was just let's just a megalomaniac, just a narcissist, just somebody who doesn't see reality correctly. Um, that's all bad enough on the political side. But for a legal argument to say, well, he knew 
that he had lost and was seeking to change it anyway. I think they did establish some of that. Whether that's enough for a jury, it's hard to say, but I think they did rebut some of those arguments there uh, in these hearings. There is a theory of Merrick Garland that he is a man apart, a man apart from politics, a man who will be unswayed by public passions or even a well-crafted narrative from a committee. But humans are humans, and this committee, A, could have, we don't know, could have surfaced some actual new information that he didn't or wouldn't be privy to, or it could have changed the mood, changed the zeitgeist, changed his calculation, changed his subconscious uh, consideration of the facts and the politics involved. Do you think any of that happened? I think it did to some extent, not necessarily in the person of Merrick Garland, but in the Department of Justice's own investigation. Because look, the DOJ investigation is very bottom up, right? They're, they were looking at who was there on Capitol Hill with what weapons, doing what acts that were violations of criminal code. And in the process of doing that, building up to, well, what was the organization effort? What about all those weapons across the river that were going to be called in later? We're hearing about that in the seditious conspiracy trials uh, going on now. Um, building up to that and building up to the orchestration and the, the understanding of the, the big picture. The committee was doing some of that, but they were really going more top down. They were looking at what's the political accountability uh, for the overall event, not necessarily just what's the criminal accountability for the person who smashed the window or the person who attacked the police officer relentlessly. So they're coming at it from different angles. When you have that, it is not unreasonable to think that the committee, in theory, could learn things from the Department of Justice investigation had it been open to the public, uh, or that the Department of Justice was learning things from the January 6th committee, which was open to the public because of these hearings. So I don't give much attention to the people who use that as an attack point to say, you know, well, the Department of Justice hadn't figured this out yet. And the committee had these interviews and found this before DOJ did. I'm like, well, of course they did. It's a finite number of people with finite resources, and they're investigating from different directions. Now, your question about Merrick Garland I don't know whether Merrick Garland every night is sitting down with a stack of papers and a set of videos that his staff gives him to have a daily update on what the committee and media investigations are finding out about January 6th. No, he I uses actually microfiche from what I, I understand. Uh, yeah, he's he's going through like a film projector, a reel-to-reel, -reel, you know, and you Correct. have the intern putting the new reel Hold, on. Holding it up to the light, just unspooling yeah. it, yes. I don't, I don't see that happening. I have not worked with Merrick Garland, but I did work closely with a previous attorney general a couple of administrations ago. And the attorney general has a huge portfolio and so many things to focus on. Um, it would surprise me if any attorney general had the amount of time on a regular basis to, to be processing information in that way. But eventually, it probably will come to the desk of Merrick Garland. There's not going to be a decision on whether to prosecute a former president that doesn't go to the front office of the Department of Justice. But at this point, I'm not sure it's there. At this point, it may be that people within the divisions of the Justice Department that are investigating this are staying very aware of what information is coming to light in these hearings that can inform their own investigation. That's certainly true. But whether it's changing the attorney general's mind, you know what? I don't, I don't think that's where we are yet. I think the DOJ investigation has to be 
presented to the attorney general, along with whatever other information is out there. And then he'll look at the statutes. He'll look at the information and make a determination whether this is something that is uh, worthy of an indictment. Politically, the committee is made up of politicians, and to have a political consideration is not necessarily a bad thing. And I would say that they wanted to raise the salience of Donald Trump as a threat to elections and democracy as a political issue for reasons of ethics, for reasons of it might help Democrats in the midterms, but even that you could argue would forward the work of the committee. How do you think they did politically? Uh, Every time there was a committee hearing, it got a lot of news, but here we are a couple of weeks from voting, and I don't know how many people who wouldn't otherwise be voting against Republicans anyway, will be casting their votes really influenced by what this committee did. I don't see much evidence that it's moving the needle significantly. I'm not watching every poll in every state, but the ones that I have seen are are talking about a number of things. They're talking about perceptions of inflation. They're talking about perceptions of the Roe versus Wade overturning they're talking about issues like that being higher than issues of constitutional order. Um, I think that's a mistake in many cases, because if you're worried about inflation, um, what makes you think inflation is going to be better if we have autocracy instead of democracy? Yeah, Erdogan's not that good with inflation. You know, I mean, you look around the world and you know, 8% inflation or whatever the most recent year to year is, there are a lot of places in the world that would love to have our inflation because theirs, theirs are higher. But the issue for me is you got to have constitutional order first. You have to respect the outcomes of elections first. Then you can argue about marginal tax rates or anti-inflation measures or energy policy. But the American people aren't saying that in the polls. Uh, American people are focused on those immediate issues. Does that mean that the committee failed? Well, it depends. Um, If the goal of the committee was to sway the midterms, then yeah, at some level, if it's not changing people's opinions, that that could be a factor. I'm not sure that really is the the, the goal. It may be a, a secondary goal. I think the primary goal was awareness, is there has to be some political accountability. Well, guess what? Donald J. Trump himself is not on the ballot. And to the extent the committee was focusing on the, ultimately, on the actions of the former president, then the political accountability really isn't the midterm. That could be a proxy for it, but that's not what it is. The political accountability is making people aware of what the president did, when he did it, what the president didn't do, and when he didn't do it, so that that can inform people about whether this is the kind of thing you want to have happen when there's a you know seditious conspiracy growing and a, an insurrection at the Capitol. That, to me, is a bigger political accountability question then who are you going to vote for to be your representative for the next two years? It's related, but it really speaks to that larger issue. Because without knowing what the Department of Justice is going to do in terms of criminal accountability, you have to have some kind of political accountability to shine the spotlight and say, look, we need to know what happened so that everybody is aware on the political side of what you want in a president and what you don't want in a president when it comes to issues like this. If that was their goal, I think they did succeed because a lot of people did watch those hearings and got the sense, oh, wow, he he really was aware of what was going on and he decided that this was actually kind of a good thing for a while. Um, I'm not sure that the midterms are a judgment on the committee as much as they are a judgment on many, many other issues on voters' minds. 
David Priest is publisher of Lawfare, its chief operating officer, and the author of such books as How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. Thanks again. It was a pleasure to be with you again. I wish we had uh, more definitive answers on some of these things, but we, we will find out more in the coming months, I'm sure. And now the spiel. Fracking is a process by which vital materials are extracted from deep within bedrock, risking shocks and even earthquakes along the way. This is an apt metaphor for the prime ministerial tenure of Liz Truss, who finally lost her grip on her party and power during, yes, a fracking vote. The vote had been going against Truss, or it looked like it was going to be. Mm, That sort of echoes everything else that describes her since her second day in office, so she shoved all in. It's not a fracking vote, the word went out. It's essentially a confidence vote on the very soul of this sceptered isle. And gentlemen shall hold their manhoods cheap and think themselves accursed. Whoa, shit, I lost. Bollocks. Prime Minister Truss resigned her premiership in a statement both cogent, direct, and well-received. In other words, the exact opposite of her tenure. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Trust self-immolated within weeks of attaining power, and today she was wise enough to recognize that the UK needs a leader, not an ember. How unpopular. She was extremely unpopular, as made clear by Andrew Bridgen, a quite conservative member of Truss's own party. Here's what he told Sky News. When you get to minus 70 on, on personal approvals, um, you're basically giving Vladimir Putin a push to run for his money, aren't you? The word that most attached itself to the days or weeks events, or maybe even Truss's overall tenure, was chaotic. Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition Labour Party, also channeled those frustrations. Well, what a mess. And this is not just a soap opera at the top of the Tory party. It's doing huge damage to our economy and to the reputation of our country. And the public are paying with higher prices, with higher mortgages. So we can't have a revolving door of chaos. We can't have another experiment at the top of the Tory party. Starmer, leader of a party poised to swamp the Tories were an election to be held, advocated for holding an election. Pretty unlikely, because the Conservatives would have to call it, though. Some favorite, thinking they're going to lose anyway. Let's lose now. I've heard some members of the British media look admiringly at the USA, where they, meaning we, at least have set procedures for when elections are held. I would say it's not the system of democracy that's favorable or inimicable to functional government. It is just that there is democracy, almost always the more the better. Remember, Trust didn't win a vote of the people. She won a ballot where some MPs and then a few Tory party members, of whom there were about 140,000 cast ballots. And while prime ministers in the parliamentary system are popularly elected, the people as a whole have an understanding of who will be their prime minister, depending on the outcome of election day, but not with trust. Nicola Sturgeon, first minister of Scotland, put it this way. 
the UK now needs to have a democratic choice uh, over its next Prime Minister. There's even ludicrous suggestions this afternoon that Boris Johnson is going to try to make a comeback. Oh my, a Boris Johnson comeback? Johnson looks pretty good now, doesn't he? goes the thinking or maybe the prodding or the provocation or the attempt to sell a few tabloids. But maybe we shouldn't be asking, will Britain take back Boris given all his baggage? Boris is no dummy. The question should be, why would he take back this impossible job? What I'm saying is Bojo to forego this slow-mo shit show. And even if he were to ride in like a knight on horseback, let's think of the horse for a second. White stallion, extremely unkempt mane, has fathered many foals. But the dynamic is all wrong for a public re-embrace. When a leader resigns, not because of mismanagement like trust, but because of committing acts that the electorate legitimately objects to as scandalous, it doesn't mean that the once soured electorate will reconsider their disposed and disgraced former leader. I think of my state, New York state. What I'm saying is Cuomo FOMO. Oh no, that's a no-go. Thank you for that indulgence. By the way, I followed my passion at the expense of prudence and the interest of others, which gets us right back to Liz Truss and her economic policies. Maybe even it gets us back to Brexit itself. Boris Johnson got by for some time as the crisis of coronavirus was thrust upon the public. He handled it decently until it was revealed he didn't. See also Andrew Cuomo. But maybe a case could be made that the economic consequences of Brexit were such that whoever was trying to run a country yoked to that policy was doomed to fail. I don't know. I do think, though it's a theory, I think it overstates just how bad a decision Brexit was. Not good, but maybe not calamitous, maybe calamitous. But Trust could have endorsed more sane tax schemes. They were available to her. Not everyone wanted to cut taxes to the extent and with the severity she did. And because she floated that proposal, she paid the price. But in any case, many Brits are surely in agreement with the sentiment expressed by Keir Starmer to the BBC today. This isn't the way we do things in this country. You know, we're a stable country with a stable economy and a good reputation. And, you know, one of my concerns is if you go around the world, um, only a few years ago, people used to look to Britain, UK, as, as stability, as, as, as the place you'd look for sort of pragmatic answers to difficult questions. At the moment, because of this government's actions, um, we're a laughingstock. And, and I, I, I find that offensive, whichever, you know, that's not a party political point. I do not want my country to be laughed at around the world because of the soap opera of this Tory government. First of all, it's interesting that every out party, no matter the circumstances, plays the our rivals have made us laughing stocks card. In this case, I don't think the UK is a laughing stock. I think they're beholden to the same laws of political hubris and economic consequence as everyone else. As I've said before, at least they have the means to take the measure of themselves and decide that bad policies with actual real world consequence must be seen as bad and consequential. In our country, the one with the set elections, we dither and threaten around things like the debt limit, which we should not be monkeying with, and some of the actors involved in this threatening really would make good on their threats, and that would be a disaster. And they would do so, maybe because they're stupid, but I think mostly because there is a belief that there won't be consequences, that any result in the current American system can be spun within fawning media so that your base remains believers. As we can see by Truss's resignation 
and the call for change and reform, that affliction has not beset Britain yet. That's it for today's show. As Corey Wara, just assistant producer, as Joel Patterson, just senior producer of our pronunciation of Antoine Tig. Do you accept this as a complete dumpster? It's, um, it, it's certainly not a circumstance I would wish to see. And Michelle Pasca, chief compliance officer of Peachfish Productions, issued this report about angry listeners' abuse of the assistant producer over the question of inconsistent pronunciation. But it's normally the force of reason, not the force of force. Um, and to be honest, that looked like bullying to me. It's, it's bullying like I've not seen since I was at school. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, and thanks for listening. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. <laughs>